whether Social Security will be around when you need it or not, tax planning if you're a millionaire or just want to be one, and how to really diversify that investment portfolio. This is Your Money, Your Wealth. Today on Your Money, Your Wealth, Larry Swedrow from Buckingham Strategic Wealth discusses factor-based investing and explains the difference between alpha, beta, and smart beta. Big Al lists the seven tax planning tips for millionaires and those who want to be millionaires. Joe and Big Al talk about Social Security and the often overlooked family benefits. And the fellas answer emails on SEPP, 72T, IRAs, 8606s, 1040s, and other mysterious numbers and acronyms. Speaking of acronyms, here are Joe. Joe Anderson, CFP, and Big Al Clopine, CPA. All right, welcome to the show. We got uh, a lot of things to discuss. I want to get into Social Security, Alan. Um, I read an article from our crack research team that has only uh, printed off half of it because the printer. Um, <laughs> the ink went The ink went, went uh, Yes. So, how much of the article do you have? Or do you have just selected words? We got bits and pieces, but I think you'll get the gist of this. <laughs> so, I was at a junior college teaching a retirement planning course over the week. Yeah. And I was going through Social Security, and this one gentleman just said, Hey, don't you think you're being a little bit, you know, aggressive with your assumptions. And I was like, well, tell me more. And he's like, well, you know, I just don't know if Social Security's going to be there. And this gentleman was probably in his mid-50s. Okay. I usually get that with the, the younger, you know, if they're in their 20s and 30s, maybe 40s even, they're like, oh, well, hey, you know what? I'll, let's let's plan right. for my retirement without it. Sure. Right? And I've been doing this close to 20 years. And, you know, when I started in the business, I was 20s. And so I was working with people my own age. Right? That's yes. what you kind of have to do when you yeah, first right. start out, right? Sure. And so, and that was 20 years ago. And they're like, yeah, no, let's not count it. And so 20 years later, I think well, what we talked about this in the past with Social Security with your father. Yeah, my dad used to get all mad because he was paying in and his mother-in-law was receiving payments and she never worked in the Social Security system. And he's going, I'm paying her payments. I'm not going to receive a dime. Right. Now he's 84, been receiving payments since <laughs> 20 65 years. or whatever the age was when he started taking it. And you know what, Joe? I, I mean, I said the same thing in my 30s and 40s. And here I now in my 50s. Yeah, I actually expect it to to continue. So, when you take a look at the OASDI fund, that's the trust fund. There's about two trillion dollars in, but more money's going out of that fund to pay participants or right. you know retirees than people are putting. And, in and the that's system. what's changed. I mean, before that, we were taking in more than the so the trust fund was building. Correct. Now the trust fund is shrinking. But the thing people forget is that money is constantly going in there. So social because security still taxed. Yeah, it's still we're still paying FICA taxes in our payroll. So it's it's not going bankrupt. I mean, here's the worst case: is in 2034 or 2036. We'll get 77% of our benefits. So that's not nothing. Right. Yeah. And if you're already collecting what the law states today is that your grandfather did, so they, right. may, they need to make some changes for the other groups that are coming in behind. You bet. Right? And, and by the way, they have made changes in the past. They've increased the retirement age. They increased the cap on, what, on the salary cap as to what they collect. They've increased the percentage. And they will likely do those three again. I guess, Joe, one thing just really quickly is means testing is something that could happen. Yeah. Right? And so if you're wealthy, you may actually want to not count on it just because you never know. Or you take it as soon as you can get it. Yeah, take it as soon as you get it, right? That that would be true. Of course, now, if you're wealthy and if you are subject to means testing, maybe you don't really need it, right? But they put into it. Yeah. They deserve it, right? They do deserve it. Yeah, they so, do deserve it. Yeah. Anyway, we can get uh, <laughs> that well, you, sideways you, uh, real quickly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So th- this is from Financial Advisor Magazine. Uh, Bernie Sanders, you heard of him? Yes. All right. So he suggests upping Social Security tax cap on incomes over $250,000. Okay. Uh, so right now, uh, we pay Social Security tax or FICA tax into the OASDI fund up to your first $127,000 of earnings. That's correct. And after that, you don't pay any more into FICA, but you do pay into Medicare. Right. That's true. So what he's suggesting is that for income earners over $250,000, that there will be another tax assessed at that age or at that income level. Right. Okay. So, then this is where my notes get a little murky. <laughs> so, you, you built it up. I built it There's up. no conclusion. <laughs> but I do have some fun facts. Okay. All right. <laughs> um, so, so, he was saying, he was like, well, if Donald Trump made as much money as his campaign says he did, 
he would have stopped paying Social Security taxes 40 minutes into the year. Okay, 40 minutes. Huh? 40 minutes okay. into the year. Okay. All right. So um, I, I think they talked about this before, too. If you're single, over 200000 If you're married, $250,000 of income, then there'd be another tax up to a certain dollar figure of maybe another 1% or 2% or something. Yeah, to, something. Uh, sure. Right? So just, I guess, what I'm trying to say is that there's workings here, Um to try to fill the gap of the trust fund right, right, by taxing a little bit more for higher wage earners. And so with his plan, and you can look it up in the Center of Economic uh, Policy and Research. Okay. So there you the, go. That's the, the Bernie source. Sanders plan? Sure. Okay. Um, but, but what he's basically saying is that his proposal uh, would fill the gap um, in that additional money that would go in would only affect 1.6% of workers. Okay, one point six percent. One point six percent of workers. So okay. it affect the one, the top one percent again. Yeah, right? there, back there to we that. Go. Right, and yep. then so then it's all solved. Right. But they have made some changes. Just last year, they changed the file and suspend restricted application. Uh, they did. So for those of you that are 62 years of age or that turned 62 years of age last year um, or full retirement age, there's still that those claiming strategies are still available to you. Right. Um, but they, they, they try to put this time frame. It's like, all right, well, here, if you're close to claiming or if you've already claimed the strategies, you're locked in. But again, for the younger generation that is coming up to those ages, they can no longer take advantage of those claiming strategies. They could reduce the cost of living. I think we talked about this a couple weeks ago. Is that what was the cost of living this year? Well, it was it was uh, like 0.01. Yeah, something like 0.01%. that. I mean, for the average person, I think it was like yeah, it was, 300 bucks. It was the lowest increase in the history of Social Security. That's what the headline said, but it, it omitted the times when it was zero. Zero. So it seems like something's more than zero, right. at least in my math. Exactly. Well, you are a CPA. <laughs> seems like it. You are a CPA. <laughs> and then, but there's different things. So let's talk a little bit about Social Security, because I think there's still some confusion on when you should take it, how you should take it, how is it taxed, and then there's the spousal benefit, there's the survivor benefit, and then there's also child or dependent uh, benefits. Well, there are, Joe, and I guess just the basics. Uh, the full retirement age this year is 66 years and two months of age. That's where you receive your your primary insurance amount, your full retirement amount. Now, you can take it earlier. You can take it at 62 if you want, but there'll be a little bit of a haircut. And this year, it'll be about a 26% reduction from your full retirement amount if you take it at 62. And what's happening currently is the full retirement age used to be 66 last year. It will be 67 in a few years. So it's kind of there's kind of a phase-in period. So anyway, so that and then this, the third thing is you could take it at age 70. And if you wait till age 70, you get quite a bit more. And to put this into real numbers, if your benefit is $2,000 at full retirement age, it's around 1500 uh, at uh, 62, and it's around 2,600 plus at uh, 70. So you can see by waiting just a few years, you get a lot higher benefit. But then they talk about the crossover, right? So what, what's the break even? And so it, it depends on all sorts of different assumptions. Right. It depends on if you take it at 62 and invest it, right? So if you invest it and you earn a certain assumption rate or yeah. a, assumed rate of 7%, yeah. right? Well, then the break even is going to be fairly It's going to be out. later, or if you earn 15%. If you yeah, think right. you can pull that off, then, uh, but, yeah, you might as well take it at 62. But I would say the majority of individuals that take it at 62, they spend it. They don't necessarily save it. Or if they, that, that is true. Right. If they did save it, they probably might make more sense to wait, right? Because it's a guaranteed income stream. So you have to take a look at it, in our opinion, as longevity insurance, right? Right, Because it's going to be a guaranteed fixed payment for the rest of your life in the longer that you wait, because we are living a heck of a lot longer than ever before. And so a lot higher fixed income payment is probably going to be beneficial for most of us, uh, because there's a lot of uncertainties. And uh, yeah, of course, there's uncertainties in the social security, but I think there's more uncertainty in the overall stock market, bond market, and everything else in between as you invest your overall assets. Um, if I can get a guaranteed rate um, of or increase, you know, in my overall benefit, I think people should be taking a look at that. Right, I agree with that, and I think you, the key is just what you said: longevity insurance. In other words, some of us are going to live into our nineties, even hundreds. Do I, do I dare say one hundred ten? Right. You know, we don't know. I mean, medical advances; people are living longer. It's not an investment; it's an income stream. It, it's an income stream, and it's there as long as you're living. Right. And in fact, if you were to pass away, your spouse gets your income stream, and that's uh, boy. If you do nothing else, if you at least look at you, you and your spouse, whichever one has a higher benefit, if you can afford to wait at least for that higher 
higher benefit individual till age 70, then no matter which of you survives the other one, you will the survivor will receive that higher benefit for life. We're talking a lot about Social Security in this week's podcast, but there are six critical Social Security facts retirees must know that we will not have time to cover today. Click on the Learning Center at purefinancial.com and go to White Papers to download the six critical Social Security facts retirees must know. Purefinancial.com. Our children can get benefits, Joe, and I don't think a lot of people know that. In fact, about 4.3 million children, according to the Social Security Administration, are receiving benefits, and the benefits add up to about $2.6 billion per month. And you might think, well, all right, if yeah, I could see where my kids would get benefits if I'm disabled or if I'm deceased. But what about this? What if you retire? What if you're at retirement age and you have young children? Could that happen? Yes, it could happen. I think I'm on that path. You're, this is for you, Joe Anderson, so listen up, because <laughs> let's say you're age 62, for example. You, you got a four-year-old. Yeah, you got a four-year-old. Trump, he's right. what seventy-one. Well, the little guy. Yeah, he's got he's got a kid under age uh, eighteen, right? Yeah. So he's perfect candidate for this strategy, right? And so you think it, Trump waited till seventy to get his benefits? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> who, who knows what uh, President Trump did? That's a mystery. But here's what you can do. You think he's claiming his... <laughs> his, his I think he probably his is. His dependent benefits? He's probably double-dipping everything he can. So at any rate, Joseph, for our listeners and, and perhaps for you coming down the line, if you have an eligible child uh, uh, that, I mean, in other words, your retirement age, age 62 or older, and if you've got a child that is your biological child or adopted child or stepchild, or it could even be a dependent grandchild. So there's where I come in. There you go. Right? Could be could be me. So to receive no your kids is not gonna happen. <laughs> to receive to receive the the benefits. By the way, let me just acknowledge I'm going over this topic because a colleague last night asked me to talk about it on the air. All right. So here we go. So, uh, so if you have a child, uh, the child must be unmarried under age 18, uh, or they could be up to 19 years old if they're a full-time student, no higher than grade 12. So I guess if you're, you got a student that's still 19 and hasn't quite gotten through high school, <laughs> this, this counts. But boy, this is kind of interesting, Joe. So you can, uh, you can apply for uh, Social Security benefits for your dependent child if, and this is a big if, if you are claiming your own benefits, right? So maybe you want to wait till 66 and, you know, full retirement age, or maybe you want to wait till age 70 because you get a higher benefit amount. But if you have a minor child and you're age 62, you might want to redo the math because if you start taking benefits at age 62, and let's say you have a 10-year-old, ch- let's, yeah. say, let's say eight-year-old child, sure. right? So 10, you know, several years, several years of benefits until they're 18, they could be receiving uh, a pretty nice benefit. And the benefit, believe it or not, is half of your full retirement age benefit, even if you take it early. So it's, a, so it's based on your full retirement yes. age number. Yes. So let me just clarify. So let's say my full retirement age is a thousand bucks. Right. And if I take it early at 62, that's a 25% haircut. So 750 bucks. So I'm going to take it at 62 because I have a kid that's 10. Right. Right. So I'm going to receive that 750 bucks. But wait a minute. I'm going to receive additional benefits because I have a dependent child under the age of 19 that's still in. Right. That, in the high school. Exactly. So then that is based on my full retirement age number, which is 1000 So they, right. I would receive another $500 in benefit. Correct. That's so you add the seven fifty plus five hundred. Well, that's uh, if you do the math over you know eight years, that's going to be more to you potentially. Right. And that and that is the exact math, right? And and Joe, I got the example. It's actually your example times two. Okay. Sixty-two year old uh, parent of a fourteen year old uh, could wait four years to collect two thousand dollars a month at full retirement age, or they could receive fifteen hundred dollars immediately. While your child gets a thousand dollars per month, because a thousand dollars is half of two thousand. So in other words, you get twenty five hundred dollars for the next four years, and then so well, um, well, thousand dollars additional a month, right? So that's twelve thousand yes. dollars a year times what four years because he's fourteen. Yes, four years. And so in this example, by the time this individual reached full retirement age, then they go back to their fifteen hundred a month, which it's indexed for inflation. Sure, but it's even better if your child is ten, right, right? or eight, right? <laughs> Because then you get all kinds of. <laughs> you know what? If you're working, if you're struggling, right, with your Social Security benefits, just yeah. pop out a couple kids. Yeah, but I, I just will adopt some. I will. <laughs> 
but there is a limit to this, Mr. James family, Anderson. Uh, yeah, there's a family fa- maximum. Fa- family maximum, and it's usually somewhere between 150 to 180 percent of your full retirement age. Of your yeah, your full retirement age. And I actually pulled out my statement to see if that was true. And uh, I won't give you the numbers because that would give away. Well, you got a big wallet on his- big Al. history of income. <laughs> But I will give away the percentage, and I looked at it. My full retirement age benefit versus the fam- total family benefits, it was 170%. There you go. So 70% higher. So I was between that 150 and 180. I have no idea how they calculate between how they pick that. But anyway, they, they, but that's, that's, we're, we're seeing that, Joe. We're seeing, we're seeing families uh, with kids, and sometimes both spouses are in their 60s, but they adopt a kid or they take over right. care for a grandchild. You got it. And this would count. And this is actually, I, I think, hardly anyone ever talks about this. This is a great benefit. And furthermore, Joe, it does not affect your own uh, benefit, right? So, so in, in other yeah, words... Yeah, sometimes people think, all right, well, here, if I'm getting additional benefit because of my dependent... Right, then I'm going to get less for yes, me. Yes, right. you got it. And I'm going to receive less. Now, it is true that you have to be receiving your benefit for this to work. And so if you take it early, certainly that affects your benefit. But the fact that your kids or... Your kid or kids, it could be plural, are getting benefits. It's not affecting what you're going to get for you. Right. And I, I would guess that the Social Security Administration is not asking you, hey, do you have dependent children when you claim your benefits? I, I would highly doubt that, too. Right. So, I don't know. I've never claimed for my benefits because I'm 40. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, me neither because I'm in my 50s. <laughs> yes. So, um, I guess I will find out in yeah, the 20 years. Yeah. So, this uh, Stay this tuned. Is, this, Joe, this is news that I think you can use based upon whatever happens in the Joseph Anderson family down the road. Oh, it's going to be exciting. <laughs> it's going to be exciting. Let's, we'll keep tabs on that. Time now for Big Al's List. Every week, Big Al Clopine scours the media to find the best tips, do's and don'ts, mistakes, myths, and advice to improve your overall financial picture in a handy bullet point format. This week, seven tax planning tips for millionaires and those who want to be millionaires. This article, this is from Motley Fool. I thought it was pretty good. That starts out with taxes. Uh, it's perhaps the most dreaded five-letter word in the English language. Ooh, that's good copy right there. But what about death? That's another <laughs> dreaded word. <laughs> but they say, but another one is audit. That's, that's another one that we don't like. So here's the first one. <laughs> it's uh, think long term. Yeah. Boy, right. we talk about that all the time. And, and what this is referring to, Joe, in this, in this particular context. Let me guess. Contest, it's just not, not look at year by year, but take a look at what to expect in the future? You got it. And, right. and you think about traditional taxes, tax preparation. And even if you're fortunate to have an account that does some tax planning, it's usually for one year at a time. But really, you got to look at 20, 30 years out to figure out what's going to be the best moves to take right now. And there's some basic things, right? And, and some of us forget this stuff. It's like, well, if you have money in CDs, right? It's interest income. Not only are they they're not paying hardly anything, but it's also subject to ordinary income tax. And if you're a millionaire, you might be probably in the highest tax bracket, right? 39.6%. You're losing federal in the state of California uh, for our California listeners right, on top of that. Right. I think to piggyback on that, too, you, you have to forecast just a little bit, especially when you're looking at a retirement income strategy to say, all right, well, here, I'm going to create income from my overall assets, right? So yeah. I'm, I have some savings. Then you have to look at, well, how are those savings? going to be taxed as you create the income. Right. right? It's, it's both of those, not just not just the investment Yeah, return. because we, we, uh, what's, um, we, we look at everything in a silo. We do. You know, we? I mean, I think that's how we were taught. Yeah. Um, it's like you get, what is it, cart, um, you know, we, um, I do the, the cart before the horse? No, whatever. Another one. No, whatever. <laughs> anyway, yeah. Okay. We're, you have to look at, because, all right, investments cause tax, and then if I can reduce the tax, then my investments are going to grow a little bit further, right? Right. It's stretch out that asset a little bit longer sure. for me to create that income when I need it. As we talked about, we're living a little bit longer. Yeah, and this is especially important in retirement when you're actually creating a cash flow from your assets. So it's like, well, all right, so there's certain kinds of investments that produce ordinary income, like interest income, some kinds of dividend income, right? Short-term capital gains. If, In other words, you buy a, a stock or mutual fund and you sell it, it's, it's at a gain, you sell it in less than a year, you're paying ordinary income tax rates. So what's the better tax rates? Well, of course, it's long-term capital gains. It's buying an investment, holding it for at least a year, and then you sell it, and then that highest uh, capital gain rate is 20%. A lot of us are paying 15%. The, the wealthiest people are paying 20%. There is an, uh, 
the the Medicare surtax on top of that 3.8%, but 20% tax rate versus almost a 40% 40. rate. It's almost so half. It's almost half, right? Now, California doesn't have a special capital gains rate, so it is what it is. But federal, boy, you cut your tax in half just by figuring out, all right, what investments do I want outside of retirement versus inside of retirement or maybe the Roth IRA? You know, And so it's all about keeping more about what you make. And then related to that, Joe, is, gosh, a lot of people have their bulk of their savings in a retirement account that when they take that money out, it's all taxed at ordinary income rates. And we see this over and over again. People retire. They're in a very low bracket. They've got some savings. They're living off their savings. They're in a super low bracket, in fact, a zero bracket. And then they hit 70 and a half. They start Social Security. They have to take the required minimum distributions. And now, all of a sudden, they're in a 25, 28% bracket, maybe subject to alternative minimum tax. Right, because we were told not to touch that money, right? Right. And it's psychologically, when people start tapping into the retirement accounts, it, it, it has an effect on people. Right. I can spend the heck out of my mutual funds and savings that are outside of the retirement account, right? I could go on vacation. I can buy all this other stuff. But as soon as I start tapping into the retirement account, start taking distributions, then it's like, uh-oh, here we go. This is the last little bit of cash that I got, and I right. don't necessarily want to do it. And now everything after that's taxable. So the strategy, if that's you, you just retired, you're in a lower bracket temporarily, then start doing Roth conversions. Start taking some money out of that IRA, that 401k, converting it to a Roth IRA. Yes, you will pay taxes, but you're paying taxes at lower brackets. And start, you know, you, there's no way to avoid the taxes, but if you can sort of pre-plan paying lower taxes, you end up with a lot more money that way. What's number two? Uh, number two is to uh, contribute to tax-advantaged retirement vehicles. All right. Like a 401k, sure. 43 b What about a teacher, Joe? 403B, 457? So they can sort of double up, right? Yeah, right? that's key. I mean, I think a lot of times, for some employees, like they, they can have two different plans. And sometimes they think, well, I can only put up to the maximum of $18,000. If I have a 403B or a 457 plan, right. let's say if I'm an educator. Sure. Um, I mean, some hospitals, they have multiple plans. Right. So the maximum amount that you can put into a defined contribution plan is about 54000 right? That's correct. It's not eighteen or twenty-four. So if I have a 403B and a four 401k or 403b in a, a 457 plan, right? So I could put in 18,000 into the 403b, 18,000 in the 457 plan, right? And then I can do the catch up for both of those plans. And guess what? I can also do a Roth IRA contribution as well um, if I'm under the income thresholds. Right. And we also, on the other side of the spectrum, we see business owners. They're in their 60s. They're making a ton of money. They could set up a defined benefit pension plan for their own company. We've seen people. Put away two hundred thousand. In in one case, I saw three hundred thousand dollars being put into a retirement account just for the owner because there were no other employees. Okay, and therefore that's a tax deduction in the in that tax year. Now this owner was going to sell his business in a couple years anyway, or a few years, you know, down the road anyway. And so, in the highest bracket now versus any time in his life, why not take that deduction right now? Right. So we look at different strategies. Let's say if you make a lot of income, you're a sole proprietor and you're like, man, I'm just getting killed in taxes. Well, you can set up this defined benefit plan. It's it's fairly complex because the defined benefit plan really bases it uh, a benefit amount for you um, when you retire. So the defined contribution plan is just set. The contributions are defined, 18 grand. Right? right. But the defined benefit plan works completely different. They're saying, all right, well, you can have a maximum income of 200 some odd thousand dollars. So let's back it up to figure out how much money that you can fund the overall defined benefit plan to get you to the maximum income stream once you retire. So you can front load this thing significantly. So the older that you are, closer to retirement and the income that you have, I mean, we you, you can shelter several hundred thousand dollars. Right. That's a great tax deduction that given year. Uh, then that money grows tax deferred until you pull the money out. Your Money, Your Wealth is presented by Pure Financial Advisors. To get your free financial assessment, call 1-877-222-6044 or visit purefinancial.com. That's 1-877-222 6044 or visit purefinancial.com for your free financial assessment. We're talking about planning tips for millionaires or people that want to be millionaires. All right. Number Number three. Number three. We're we're only the three. Use your investment losses to your advantage. I bet you know what they're getting at here. So when you have an investment that's outside of a retirement account, hopefully that investment goes up over time. But you know how the market is. It's volatile. Sometimes your investments go down temporarily, sometimes longer term. But when an investment goes down in value, lower than what you paid for it, there's a great strategy. It's called tax-loss harvesting. You actually 
sell that asset on purpose so that you create a tax loss that you can use on your tax return. Then you buy something similar so you're still invested and your, your investment portfolio still has its integrity. But in the meantime, you've created a loss. Let's say you have an investment that went down $20,000, for example. That $20,000 loss gets captured on your tax return and is available dollar for dollar against any future capital gain, right? So in other words, you sell a, a mutual fund at a loss, right? You get $20,000 loss. You sell another one at a gain, $10,000 gain. You don't pay any taxes on that $10,000 gain because you got the $20,000 loss. Whatever you don't use in the current year carries over into the next year and you go through the same thing again. Right. It will carry over for the rest of your life. So basically what I think I understand you saying is that, all right, in my overall portfolio, it needs to be in a taxable account. It can't be in a retirement account. So let's say I have multiple mutual funds. Some are going up, some are going down. It's, you know, it's a diversified portfolio. Everything can't go up. That would be yeah, all, all positively correlated. Uh, that would yeah, not necessarily be a diversified right. portfolio. It, it's, it doesn't happen. It, it, right. Well, it does happen with people that don't have a diversified portfolio. <laughs> if they got, if they pick the one right investment. So let's say you have multiple different mutual funds. You have small companies, mid-sized companies, international companies, commodities, whatever. It's all diversified in that portfolio. But one of the funds goes down. Let's say it goes down $20,000. So what Al is suggesting is that you sell that, buy something similar. So let's say it's an international mutual fund. So it's... It's down 20000 bucks. You sell that. You buy another international mutual fund. It cannot be identical. There's wash sale rules there. So you got to be careful of what you're doing. But the portfolio roughly looks the same. So I sold an international fund, bought something similar. So I'm still in that market, right? So then that $20,000 loss sits on my tax return. So the portfolio looks similar. Now as other asset classes move up, right? And maybe I need to create that year $10,000 worth of income from the portfolio, right? We're, we don't want you to sell and spend the assets that go down. We want you to sell and buy the same asset class that goes down. We want you to sell and spend asset classes that go up. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Right? So now you take $10,000 from the portfolio, and guess what? That $10,000 gain that you just created to create that income, well, you have a $20,000 loss. That would offset dollar for dollar, so that $10,000 comes to you 100% tax-free. And so you consistently look at your overall portfolio and the mix of asset classes that you have in that particular account to make sure that you continue to harvest losses so those losses will offset future gains as you're trying to create income. Those losses will carry over for the rest of your life. Is that a fair that's excellent, Joe. But here's the problem, okay. okay? Most people will never do that. You know why? And I think this is why more and more people should have a professional management of some sort that looks at tax loss harvesting. Because there's something that's called anchoring that is embedded in our mind as a behavior that is... So are detrimental you, to your financial health. Are you saying we don't want to accept that we lost money? Yes and no. So okay. let's say this, Al. Let's say I bought a stock or a mutual fund at $50 a share. So I look, hey, I buy XYZ stock, 50 bucks a share. It goes down to $30 a share. You and I would sell that and buy something similar to harvest that loss, Correct. Right. Because there's no emotion there. But if I'm that individual, right, if I'm doing this on my own, it's like, all right, it's $50, it's worth $30 a share. Do you think I'm going to sell it? Uh, no, you want to wait to get your money back. I'm going to wait until when it reaches... Well, at least 50. At least 50, right? May so I anchored it at that price of $50 a share. If it goes down to 30, if it goes down to 25, it's like, nope, I'm not selling it until it goes back to that anchoring price of 50. We all want to say we never lost money. The same thing works on the other side of the equation. Right. I bought that stock at $50 a share. All of a sudden, now it's $75 a share. What am I thinking? Yeah, well, you're thinking you did a great job. But also, hey, this is, well, this is getting a little overpriced, maybe, <laughs> right? I should sell and reap some profits. Because yes. I bought it at 50, now it's at 75, right? So we anchor it at whatever price that we purchase it, which is ridiculous. We yeah. shouldn't be doing that. That's a good point. So when you look at tax loss harvesting, you have to get the behavior and the emotion out of the equation to really benefit you long term. And so you have the emotions in there, you have your portfolio construction, and then you have the tax aspect of it. Right. That's why everything has to be coordinated versus looking at things in a silo. Like I have my tax plan over here, I have my investments over here. It's like, I don't know, like, let's say if you went to a restaurant and ordered a burger and fries, right? Your kids, did they, like, didn't want the fries to touch the burger? Oh, yeah. Right? And the ketchup had to be somewhere oh, else, I was, right? I was the worst when I was a kid. <laughs> and then you would just eat the fries first. Yeah. And then you would eat the burger, right? Yeah. No, right now, I mean, I put my fries in my burger. <laughs> 
<laughs> you've got you've got other extreme. Yes. Yeah, right. So you you got to look at it as not necessarily one thing versus another. This strategy, when it comes to your overall financial wealth, has to be looking at all sorts of different disciplines. Giving to charity is another strategy that the millionaires do, and you can do yourself, uh, which is obviously when you give to charity, it's a tax deduction, right? It's an itemized deduction. Of course, you have to be able to itemize. You have to have more deductions than the standard deduction. But that's true of most of us in California, right, that have any level of income because of the state taxes that we pay. That's a deduction. But if you're in the highest tax bracket, that's 39.6%. So you're saving about 40 cents of that dollar just in taxes. And oh, oh, we live in California. That could be a another 13%. So you're saving over 50 cents, or 50%, 50 cents on a dollar on your contributions. So then it's uh, it's like, and a lot of folks that have money, they do, a lot of people have great hearts. They want to give back to charity, but you get a benefit yourself. And then you think about, well, are there smart ways to do this? And sure, you can actually give away an appreciated stock instead of giving away cash. Because the way that works is whatever the stock is worth on the day you give it away is your tax deduction. And you don't have to pay the tax on the gain. Right. If I bought it for a dollar a share, now it's worth $10 a share. I give that stock to the charity at $10 a share. I don't pay any tax. They sell it. They don't pay any tax. Right. Because they're a nonprofit. You got it. So yeah. what usually happens, though, is that maybe I have some cash, right? Some you know money market account, savings account. I'll just cut a check and then I'll sell that stock and spend it. Well, then I'm paying tax while I gave the cash away. No, give the stock away so you don't have to pay the tax on the appreciation of the stock. Right. Um, it's it's a more smarter way to look at it. it. It really is. Now, don't do this if your stock has gone down in value. Yes. Right. Well, sell, sell it. And buy something and, similar. Well, or sell it, create the loss, and then give the cash away. So you got that loss that you can use against other stuff. If you need a free financial assessment, if you missed an episode of the podcast, or if you're just dying to see what Joe and Big L look like, visit purefinancial.com. Access the Learning Center with resources, white papers, and webinars on investing and financial planning. Subscribe to the podcast and see clips from the Your Money, Your Wealth TV show, all at purefinancial.com. We're talking taxes, seven seven tax planning tips for millionaires and those that want to be. Perfect. That's so it's. number five. <laughs> number five. Thank you, Joseph. Uh, is consider municipal bonds, and uh, why? Because municipal bonds are generally tax-free. In other words, you receive interest income, you don't pay any taxes on them, and if they're the if they're uh, issued in your state of residence, like California, for example, then it's tax-free in the United States. IRS tax-free in California, franchise tax board. So you got to be careful here now couple of things is that bonds versus stocks, first of all, I think people get confused. Yes. A bond is an obligation. It's, it, it's a note. It's a loan. So it's like, it's like you're loaning your money to the government, or in this case, a, a city, municipality, or, or county, or state, for, for that matter. So you have to make sure that you understand what you're doing, because the higher the interest rate doesn't mean it's a better bond. Because people will look at this interest rate; it's at seven. I mean, I'm throwing what four percent? Let's just right. say versus let's, two. Yeah, let's, like let's get crazy. yeah, let's get realistic here. What <laughs> what, what what year am I in here? Nineteen eighty. Right. Well, I, uh, yeah, but I've seen people getting trust deeds now for ten percent. Oh, sure. Even in this market, yeah, guaranteed ten percent. Right until will, until they default. Until they're no longer. Yeah. Right? But let's look at a municipal bond, for instance, because the higher the interest rate that you get from the bond, that doesn't necessarily mean the bond is better. It means it's more risky. So you have to look at, and I'm sure a lot of you've heard throughout the media and everything else, as interest rates go up, bond prices go down. And so a lot of pundits are saying, be very careful with your fixed income. A lot of you have come into our office and say, Joe, Al, why would I even own bonds when I know it's a certainty that I'm going to lose money? Yeah, I don't want any. I don't want any, right? I want everything stocks because look at how great the stock market is until the stock market isn't. And then why didn't we, why were we in bonds? Well, yeah, then why wasn't, right? <laughs> well, we always want what we can't have. So interest rates go up, bond prices go down. So just be careful what type of bond that you own. Now, if you own that bond to maturity, okay, then you're fine. You just have opportunity cost because you're locked into that specific coupon. All right. So I buy a municipal yeah. bond at 3%. If I hold that, let's say $100,000, I get $3,000 of income. If it's a municipal bond, it's 100% tax-free if I buy it in the state that I live in. And so, hey, everything's great until interest rates go up to, let's say, 5%, hypothetically, of course. Right. Your bond price is going to go down if you sell that bond prior to the maturity date. Yeah, that, and that's a key point. You're allowed 
allowed to sell the bond. You don't have At to wait time, till maturity. It's a liquid market. It's a liquid market, but if you sell it and interest rates have gone up, the price of your bond is going to go down because no one wants to buy a three percent bond when they can buy a five percent bond right. in today's market. No rational so, individual so, will do that. So you have to discount it, right? And that's where the losses can come in. Right. And so if I hold that to maturity, then it's like, all right, well, here I didn't get, I, I did not receive a loss of principal. Right. If it's matured. Right. And there's no default. Sure. So now a lot of experts are saying, all right, well, let's say if Trump reduces the overall top federal rates, right, on the individual side, okay, well, then municipal bonds are going to get hurt. Right. Right. So there could be some issues there, too. I mean, Meredith Whitney, when was that? Oh, gosh. That 2009? was. 2009? I, I, no, I want to say 2010, 11? 11. But in that time frame. With she, all these she, defaults, I mean, you know, she, she predicted it would be just Armageddon in the municipal bond and, uh, industry. And of course, it never happened, but uh, that's what she predicted. But that doesn't mean it can't happen. Right. Because look at Detroit, right? Sure, they filed sure. bankruptcy. And, and or- Orange County. Orange County, you know, Bell, right. and Stockton. Yes. And I mean, the yes. list goes on and on. Right. So just be careful, right? There's, been, there's pros and cons to every type of investment. There is no free lunch out there. So if you do buy a municipal bond, yes, it's going to be tax-free to you. You will, if as long as you hold that bond in maturity, you will not receive a discount. Now, that is if you own individual securities, right? right. An individual bond, an individual issue. Um, in most of, in most cases, we probably, it depends on your asset level, but if you don't got, I don't know, a couple million bucks, a bond fund is probably going to be a better option just because of the pricing. The pricing and the diversification. Right. You want a little bit more diversification, and then plus the pricing on individual bonds on those small issues, I mean, they will take you to the cleaners because there's very little transparency. Yeah, because there's there's buy, bid-ask spreads, right? right? And who's getting all that money? What's the commission. The per- person that sold it to right. you. Right. I mean, and the bond market is so much bigger than the stock market. I know. I think that's a, a mystery to most people. I mean, it's... The, <laughs> the stock market is little compared to the bond well, market. Yeah, because you think about it. Countries don't issue stock. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? You can't yeah. buy stock in, in USA, <laughs> but you can buy a treasury. There's trillions in yes. treasuries. Yes, right. Right. So if you kind of think of it like that, there's the the bond market is gigantic, and the you know stock market is tiny. And these bond traders on Wall Street, they don't want to you know mess around with you know hey I got twenty five thousand dollars right. Your broker is going to make a, a mint on that twenty five thousand. Right. So just uh, I think a bond fund is probably a little bit more better for most of us, but. Of course, there's every circumstance is different, so you just want to make sure you do your due diligence, get the transparency that you need to make sure that you make the right decisions. So. Yeah, and Joe, I think something you said right off the bat bears repeating is the the bond that if you if when you're looking at individual bonds or maybe even bond funds, the ones that are paying more is not necessarily the better one because that that means they'll be more risky. And it's kind of like when you go to a bank to get a loan, what do they ask you for, or what do they get? They they want to get a credit report, they want to get your FICO score, right? And so the higher your score is they know you're not that much of a risk, so they can give you a low rate. Right. If you, Alan's if, FICO score is 800, mine's 500, <laughs> right? So, so, so that's why my mortgage is 17%. <laughs> so, and Joe is trying to issue bonds right now, so he's going to have to pay a lot, right? Right. So the bank is saying, all right, well, Anderson here is more risk, so I'm going to charge him more. So I have to pay a heck of a lot more than Alan because Alan has a better clean track record, plus... We all know that the big bucks on Big Al, right? He's got a big <laughs> that's been, wallet. That's been well documented in prior shows, right? <laughs> so, so right. Well, who would you rather loan your money to, Big Al or me? I would imagine most of you say, yeah, of course, Big Al. But you're going to say, well, no, I'd much rather loan the money to Joe because I'm going to get a higher, higher interest rate. rate. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But how long are you going to get that higher rate yeah. before I stop paying you? Yeah, that's the problem. Is default risk. Default right? risk. And so, so that, that's the risk that you're taking on on some of these higher interest rate bonds because people. Equ- bonds to stocks. If I'm looking at my 401k plan and I'm saying, all right, well, what type of bond should I buy? Because I'm getting closer to retirement. Let's take a look at the past 10 year of my three bond funds, right? One bond fund is, you know, up 10%. The other one's up six and the other one's up two. Well, of course, people are going to select the one that did 10% over the last 10 years because, of course, that's a better fund. That's not necessarily the case. That just means that that bond fund has a lot more risk than the one that was up 2% because it's a note. It's a loan. You're not buying into the profitability of the company. So if I buy a Google bond and all of a sudden Google takes over the world, right? my bond coupon is not going to change 
in price. It's not because it was a contractual loan agreement it, with it, that company. Yeah, it's lo- you don't own the company or piece of the company. It's a it's, loan to the company. It's a loan to the company. If I have a piece of ownership, such as common stock with that company, right. yes, then I will see a lot higher appreciation because I'm an owner. I have right. skin. I because I could lose everything. So just be careful of how you're examining the investments that you put in your overall portfolio. Joe, another tip for the wealthy is buying health insurance. And and you think, well, you know, who cares about that? Well, this year in particular, uh, there's quite a penalty if you don't have health insurance. And and the penalty is 2.5% of your income up to a maximum of 13100 so you might as well just get the insurance because you're you're paying for it anyway in a penalty if you if you're wealthy. Now I will say if you are on Medicare, well that counts, right? right? Or so Tricare, or if yeah. you have your own th- th- um, group right. policy, th- things and- like that. Larry Swedjo on the line. Larry's been on the show multiple, multiple times. Good friend of the show. He's written several books on investing, financial planning. Uh, he's director of research of Buckingham in the BAM Alliance that manages, what, Larry, $16, $17 billion of assets or even more than that? And they we're approaching $28. $28 billion. Wasn't it just like 16 last year? And I think it was a bit higher, but <laughs> yeah, we crossed $10 billion, uh, a couple of times in 08, once on the or 07, once on the way up and once on the way down, and we've been growing pretty steadily since then. Well, I appreciate your time. I know you're a very busy guy. The last time we, t- well, it wasn't the last time. I think it was last year when we were talking about your last book, but then now we have another book coming out. Let's talk a little bit about, A, what's this new book about and what made you write it again? Or write another one again, I guess. The book is called Your Complete Guide to Factor-Based Investing. The academic literature, really since 1992, when Gene Fahm and Ken French wrote their famous paper, The Cross-Section of Expected Returns, and added small and value as factors, they call them, that helped explain the returns of portfolios, that really changed forever the way we think about investing. We went from thinking about just diversifying between stocks and bonds to now diversifying across asset classes, meaning large cap and small cap value and growth made the world much more complex, but opportunities for advisors like you, Joe, to help your clients by adding value through superior design, better diversification of portfolios. But the academic research didn't end there. And over the last 20-plus years now, we've actually had papers published to the extent that John Cochran, a University of Chicago professor, uh, called it a, a zoo of factors with over 600 of them identified. So my concern was, how does the average investor figure out which exhibits in that factor zoo should they be interested in looking at and considering so I thought it would be a good idea to help provide a framework for people to think about. And we identify uh, eight factors in the book, six for stocks and two for bonds. And we give people a framework that says in order for you to consider a factor, it should have evidence of persistence, meaning it exists with a premium above market return for a very long time across economic cycles. It's pervasive around the globe, meaning we're not lucky it was just the U.S. outcome, perhaps. Even better if it's pervasive across asset classes. So, for example, the momentum factor works in stocks, bonds, commodities, and currencies. The value factor works the same way across asset classes. So that gives you more confidence it's not data mining. It should be robust is the term I use, meaning it can hold up to various definitions. So, for example, Fama and French use price-to-book ratio as a definition of value. But a price-to-earnings or price-to-cash flow, for example, didn't work. I would be suspicious that it was just the data mining, a lucky outcome. But as it turns out, we can use one of four or five different metrics for value. Uh, and the same thing applies to things like momentum and quality and profitability, these other factors that we recommend should also be implementable, meaning it holds up after transactions cost. And lastly, it should have a intuitive reason, 
to believe it should persist in the future, meaning that there should be a good risk-based explanation, just like stocks are riskier than bonds, so we expect but aren't guaranteed that stocks will outperform, that we should have a risk-based explanation for these premiums and or a behavioral explanation that should hold up. So the book goes through all of these issues for every one of the factors we recommend uh, and then shows you the historical evidence. So looking at the traditional view, potentially, or I mean, for lack of a better word, kind of more active type management to try to add value, right? So it's looking at timing markets or picking individual securities or different sectors of the market that maybe one individual thinks that is going to outperform. This is changed of how you know certain advisors are, are adding value to their clients by looking at these factors of saying, hey, it's, it's difficult to time markets, it's difficult to predict the future, but if you look at these certain factors and construct a portfolio based on academic science, you'll have a higher probability of getting that alpha or outperformance than if you would if you use more of a traditional view. I mean, it, 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 does that make sense? Yeah, basically on the right line, I want to change a couple of the words. Uh, well, of course you do. There. <laughs> You're uh, a smart guy. I'm kind of an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> to, to make things clear for your audience. So we want to define alpha and beta here. So alpha means that your performance is above the market, but on a risk-adjusted basis. So if you buy small cap stocks and you outperform large stocks, that's not alpha. That's what an academic would call beta, which means simply you have exposure to this risk factor we call small cap stocks. So if you buy emerging market stocks and you outperform the S&P 500, that's not alpha. That's exposure or beta to the emerging market risk. Same thing for value stocks. Or if you buy long-term bonds instead of short-term bonds, that's loading on what's called the term factor. Each of these factors should have a premium. Often, you and I know, active managers claim alpha when they're really giving you beta. Uh, meaning it's exposure to one of these common factors that a computer can give you exposure to simply by buying all of the securities that have that common trait, whether it's small stocks or value stocks which have low prices to earnings. So we want to make sure people are differentiating between alpha, which could be skill-based, but beta, which just is a systematic exposure to a common factor and doesn't involve any individual stock picking nor really any market timing either. Well, then now there's something that's called smart beta. What's your take? Uh, That's just factor investing with kind of a marketing ploy, isn't it? Well, uh, let me say it this way. 99% probably of what's called smart beta is nothing more than beta. Okay. And what I mean by that is if you invest in small cap stocks and buy a Vanguard small cap fund that's based upon, say, an MSCI index, that isn't smart beta. That's taking more risk in small stocks. However, let's take two similar small cap funds, neither one of which does any stock picking or market timing. One, and let's even assume that both of them use the exact same index. But one is a pure indexer, which means they slavishly follow the index. When a stock leaves the index, they are forced to trade when everyone knows they're going to have to trade. So their cost of trading is high because everyone knows when they're going to trade and they must pay up to execute those trades. They are what an academic would call a buyer of liquidity and they have to pay up to get that. On the other hand, let's say Joe, because he's a much smarter guy, he builds a fund based on the same index, but he says, you know what, I don't have to trade on that exact day. I'm going to use a computer program called an algorithmic trading program, and I've got these 50 stocks that I need to sell and these 26 new additions that I need to buy, and I'll let the computer uh, send the signal to the market that I want to buy 100 shares of this, and I'm looking to sell 100 of that. But instead of taking the offer, I'm, I might give an example, say a bid is at $10 and an offer is at $10.10, well, instead of taking the offer at ten ten, maybe you put in a bid of ten oh one or ten oh two, slightly above the where the market bid is, and you hope that your bid gets it. But you don't care; you'll wait. Right. Uh, and so that, to me, is smart beta because it's patient trading, and over time will outperform the index. Uh, let me give you one other example. Let's say an index includes 
all stocks, uh, and academic research might show that certain types of stocks have poor returns. We know that the research shows that stocks under $2 have very poor returns. That's IPOs generally have very poor returns on average. So you decide, I'm going to screen those out even if they're in an index because the academic research says that would deliver higher returns. That, to me, is smart beta. has nothing to do with individual stock picking. You're not saying I'm going to buy this IPO and not that IPO, but a systematic replicable approach. So yes, I do believe there is a thing that you can call smart beta, but 98, 99% of what the industry calls smart beta is marketing hype. That's Larry Swedrow, folks. Taking money from retirement accounts before age 59 and a half, reinvesting dividends or saving them for the market dip, and more. It's time to dip into the email bag with financial questions courtesy of Advisor Insights from Investopedia and you, the Your Money, Your Wealth listeners. Joe and Big Al are always willing to answer your money questions. Email info at purefinancial.com or you can send your questions directly to joe.anderson at purefinancial.com or alan.clopine at purefinancial.com. So what is the best method uh, for me to receive separate equal periodic payments, Alan. Okay. SCPP, you know what that means, right? Summary, I would like to roll over $100,000 into an IRA and receive separate equal periodic payments, SCPP. I'm 55 years old, and my wife is 46 years old. I would like to receive payments for five years from this. Is that acceptable under current tax law? S-E-P-P. So that's referring to 72T, right? So you have an IRA. and Because typically with an IRA, you have to wait till age 59 and a half before you take the money out without penalty. If you do take it out before then, you've got to pay a 10% penalty. Um, and it, so you have an IRA you, at age 55. You're still allowed to take the money out without penalty as long as you do this 72T election, which means it's a it's a separate periodic payment. I forget what the other S stands separate for. Separate equal. Separate equal periodic, periodic payment. payment. You, you just have to take the same amount of money out of the account for five years or 59 and a half, whichever is whichever longer. Whichever is longer. So, so if, if, if he's 55, that's perfect, right? You got it. So he can do it till he's, in, in essence, 60, right? Which is just about right. So yes, under current tax law, you're still good to go. But this is the little catch here. Al. Yeah, I, I knew you are going to go there, which is good. Because he's said he's rolling over a hundred thousand dollars yes from his 401k he didn't he didn't specify 401k but, but i'm guessing he's rolling over from a 401k into an ira that'd be my guess so what's a better strategy keep it in the 401k plan <laughs> because at 55 if you separate from service from that employer you have full access to the 401k plan at 55 not 59 and a half exactly so you could take out as you don't have to dink around with the scpp 72t tax elections yeah and and that's i don't think a lot of people know that, Joe. It's like you have an opportunity to retire at 55, let's say, and you can pull money out of your 401k without penalty. Of course, you do have to pay income taxes on it. You don't avoid that, but you don't have to pay penalty. Now, if you roll that over to an IRA, you can't take it out till 59 and a half without penalty unless you do the 72T election. Look at the big brain on Big Al. Oh, man. And I wasn't even hardly listening to the question. I know you weren't. You were just still wrapped up in Larry Swedrill's factor talk. I couldn't. Yeah, I'm still getting my arms around it. I know our listeners are, too. Yeah, fascinating. You got a profitability factor? I mean, that's the new one, right? You got small. I mean, it makes sense. You got value. Right. Yeah, sure does. I mean, there's hundreds of factors now. I just um, read something, too. Rob Arnott was saying, be careful of smart beta, because he came up with this. It's basically factor investing. Right. But he calls it smart beta. I mean, okay. that's, I think that's Just, kind of... Yeah, yeah, another word for it, I guess. A, a beta's risk. And right, so you, right. get, you take smart risk. Smart risk, yeah. Yeah, that's... Yeah, you know, I that's, suppose that's snazzy. Yeah, yeah. That, that's... <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, speaking of Larry, um, we'll end this segment with this question, Al. Okay. Do I reinvest my dividends or hold on to them and save them in case of a market dip? Okay. What do you think? Do I reinvest my dividends or save them in case of a market dip? Well, that, so I guess what he's suggesting is if he if he keeps his dividends, he's probably going to put it into cash, right? Correct. Right. 
So I think I think, and we get these questions kind of in a in a vacuum. You got to look at a at a at a much broader holistic. Please picture. don't hold us accountable for this advice. Yes, because it's this. Sucks. Ne- oh, here it is. This is not advice. How about that? We are just chatting. Yeah. Just a couple of kids it's, having a couple of beers. It's, it's it's a chat, but. But really, the answer is what what is the right investment strategy for you, and what what else do you have? Right? Maybe it would make total sense to reinvest your dividends because whatever your goals are, I mean, we don't have enough information. So I kind of like the, the his his concept here because it it depends on how many other asset classes that he has and everything else. Is it individual stocks, and does he have mutual funds, and how much dividends are kicking out, and how much money that he has? And I think that's what you were trying to say. But let's say if you do this and. Instead of reinvesting that dividend back into that particular security, you just hold it in cash, right? Right, um, and then you take that cash to help you rebalance, right? Right, and maybe so when maybe- other asset classes are low, you take that cash to buy the asset classes that are lower. So you're not necessarily selling any securities; right. you're just taking the dividend and holding that in cash, either to take distributions for income or to help you with the overall rebalance. And, and maybe it's it's like a poor man's way to rebalance, right? Because you're basically taking money out of the stock market and going into a safer asset class. Right. So it depends, too, on how much cash that you have in the overall portfolio. Because let's say if you have a ton of dividends, how long are you going to save? If you want to buy on the dip, I mean, that's market timing. Right. It's hard to do. Yeah. So we don't believe in that is a great strategy because it's very difficult to time. I mean, you might be able to get lucky once, but to get lucky twice, it's challenging. Like you might be able to say, hey, I don't, this is not feeling good. I want to get out of the overall market. So you get out, you know, right in 2007, right? But when do you get back in? You know, right. a lot of people did sit in cash. I mean, look at the beginning of this year, right? Or at the end of last year during the election. A lot of you got into cash. You were like, this is too spooky for me. Brexit was another example. Hey, let's get into cash. The market's going to free fall. It's going to blow up, right? So you got out, but was that the right time? Probably not. Now, when do you get back in? So you missed the run. So, you know, holding on to cash to buy on the dip, right? It, it's, sure. It's, I mean, it's tough. It's it's because well, be, how big is that? What dip are you going to buy on? Well, because it's only clear when you should have bought after it's already happened. It's, yes, and it's, uh, it's, and it's too late. It's after the fact. So let's say, all right, well, here then you have to have a true process on when you buy. With a rebalance strategy, you already have that in your processes, right? It's like this asset class when it gets to this bandwidth, I'm going to buy more of it from that cash. Versus saying, hey, when the market drops, it's at twenty three thousand. When it goes down. To 18, that's when I'm going to buy. Well, how about the next day it goes down to 16? Right, so you missed the right dip. So, (laughs) true. I guess the only dip in this conversation (laughs) is me. Get social with your money, your wealth, and pure financial advisors. Follow us on Twitter at YMYW Show. To connect with us on Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, and Google Plus, just search for Pure Financial Advisors. Full disclosure, Advisor Insights Investopedia sends me these email questions once a week, and Al and I answer them on the air. Can I open an IRA in 2017 and deduct it on my 2016 tax return, Big Al? Okay. I'm retired and took out a 401k, but did not roll it into an IRA in 2016. Okay. Can I open one now before filing my tax return and take a deduction? Questions. The question's bad, Al. That's yeah. Still- if he, I'll, I'll answer it two ways. Uh, if you worked in, in 2016... So he's thinking he gets a deduction by rolling his 401k into an IRA, it sounds like. Well, maybe. I, I don't know. I'm a, that would be a, a crazy question. The answer to that is no. <laughs> but let's take what I th- what I think he might be asking is, can he still... So he didn't... Maybe maybe just work part of the year, 2016. Can he take a deduction on his IRA uh, all the way till April 15th of this year? And the answer is yes, as long as his income is low enough, right? And And... And let's say let's say if he didn't work a full year, and I don't know whether he's married or single, so <laughs> there's different different limits here. But let's say he's single, for example. Then uh, if he made uh, let's see, let the, he made less than sixty-two thousand dollars, he can take a full deduction, or seventy-two thousand, then he can't take any. But he also may have retired years ago. You can you can't do a currently deductible IRA unless you have earned income and you're below the limits. Now, if you didn't contribute to a 401k or didn't have a pension plan, you're not subject to these limits. So there's a ton of things we don't know. 
Yeah, you need earned income. Earned income would be self-employment income, Schedule C income, right. or W-2 wages. Right. Um, your pension does not qualify. Social Security would not qualify. Interest in dividends does not qualify as earned income. Yeah, and I think another thing that gets confusing sometimes is is the concept of a calendar year. So, so most things when it comes to taxes have to be done in a calendar year. There's a couple exceptions. To do a, a deductible IRA or IRA contribution, you can do that all the way till April 15th of the following year, but you had to have earned income in the last calendar year. You couldn't, if you didn't have any, you couldn't go out before April 15th and get some earned income and deduct it. It would only apply for 2000. 17 on that example. Okay. Um, I have a, a, a question for you. Okay. A personal question, I guess. Oh, good. So this is off Joe Anderson. Yeah. Let's say that... Um, You're thinking about Social Security and the kid benefit, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, right. You 20, want to get, get an angle there. 20 years. <laughs> um, all right. Let's say I do a backdoor Roth IRA contribution. So that means that I have an after-tax IRA contribution, and I convert that to a Roth IRA. Okay. Right. Let's say I do that in 2017 for 2016. Okay. So I make my IRA my I make my 2016 IRA contribution. Yeah, in, in 2017. Yes. Okay. okay. So I put my $5,500 in, and then I convert it. Okay. And then I put another $5,500 into an IRA for 2017. Okay. And then I convert that. Yes. Okay. So. So you got eleven thousand dollars converted into right. the Roth. Sure. Do I have to file two eighty six oh six forms? Two eighty six oh six forms. No, you would just file one. They'd be added together. But they both would be on that same eighty six oh six form in twenty seventeen, and would. that would show the twenty seventeen and twenty sixteen. Conversions. Yes, that's right. And an 8606 form is is when you have a, when you have an IRA contribution where you didn't get a tax deduction. It gives you tax basis, is what we call it. So that's one reason you do that form. Another reason you do that form is if you do a Roth conversion, you put the conversion on that form. So Roth conversion is taking money from your retirement account and then moving it into a Roth IRA. Right. Um, if you don't have basis in that, you will pay tax on it. But then that would show that the money went into the Roth. So what the IRS is just tracking how much money that went into the Roth via the 8606 form versus they, the, because you still they, get they the are. 1099 from the, the custodian. Yeah, it doesn't it, it doesn't really matter which year that I the the non-deductible IRA was. It's it's the year of of conversion it gets on the 8606 and you could theoretically also convert from another existing IRA that you have in the same year. Right, and then that all goes on that same form. The only reason you'd have two form eighty six oh sixes is if you're married and husband and wife, wife. both did one. All right, um, I am fifty years old and plan on using the four hundred one k catch up provision, twenty four k for twenty seventeen. Okay. When I retire, what is the contribution limit for a rollover to an existing Roth IRA? Can I roll over backdoor? My 401k spouse is retired into both Roth IRAs, mine and spouse, even though our joint AGI line 15 of 1040 will exceed the IRS annual limit for IRAs. I have had the two Roth IRAs for more than 15 years. (laughs) That's a mouthful. Well, there's a few misconceptions there, but let me, I, I guess this individual has a 401k. He's going to be taking advantage of the catch-up, which means instead of putting $18,000 in, he can put up to $24,000. Yeah, let's kind of break this thing down sentence yeah. by sentence. Yeah, right? So that was the first so thing the, Yeah, said. the first one is he's 50. He's got a plan, 401k, catch-up provision 24. All right, so 18000 is the max. Then he got the catch-up to 24. As soon as you're 50 years old. Right then, you can put twenty four thousand dollars in. So then he's then the next question he asks is when I retire, what is the contribution limit for a rollover to existing Roth IRAs? Uh, there is no limit whatsoever. So you, what he's thinking of is there is a there is a limit for making contributions to a Roth IRA, but any kind of Roth conversion, or in this case a Roth conversion rollover from a four hundred one k, that's there is no limit, and that's that's a huge misconception that people have. It, it doesn't matter if you make five million bucks, right? You can convert your three million dollar IRA if you want to. Of course, you'll pay taxes at the highest rate, so you probably don't want to. But there is no limit, right? He's thinking it's the contribution limits. Yes, right. And then so to to follow this up, all these different terminology gets out in the airwaves, and it just blows people up because then he says, "Can I roll over?" 
quotes backdoor <laughs> my 401k. Well, there, there's no now such thing. There's no such thing as what? Get the barn door, right? <laughs> Open the front door. Let's go, let, yeah, let's go. That's just the, a straight front door. Go through the skylight. Hey, uh, so, well, well, here's something you can do though. So, but no, let, let, let me we'll finish here. Okay. Because he's saying, can I roll over my 401k into both Roth IRAs? So he's thinking, okay, well, now I got this 401k. I'm maxing this thing out, right, to twenty-four thousand dollars. I'm fifty. When I retire, I'm going to have all this money. I want to get money into a Roth IRA. Sure. So he might be assuming that he has to be retired for him to do a conversion. Right. And then he's thinking the conversion dollars is 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 the same as the contribution limits of fifty-five hundred. Yes. He's like, well, I got all this money. I wonder if I can split it up and put it into mine and my spouse's. Right. No, you cannot do that. It's if you have a four hundred one k, you have to move it into your own individual IRA or own individual Roth IRA, if your spouse has a 401k, she would have to move her money into her own. You cannot commingle. You can't take spouses and move it into your own or vice versa. Well, there is one way to do that. You have to die. Yes, you have to die. <laughs> if you die, your spouse can put yeah, it in right? there, his or There's a her. strategy for you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Well, one other thing, quick, quickly, Joe. So it, it could be that maybe there was some non-deductible, some after-tax or uh, yeah, after-tax money in his 401k. When he retires, he's allowed to send that after-tax money directly to a Roth IRA. The pre-tax he rolls into an IRA. There's no tax consequence for either one, and he got some money into a Roth IRA. So that's possible. I mean, yeah, you just have to understand the rules when it comes to these plans. It's like, all right, well, the conversion is unlimited. The contributions are based on income. Sure. And then you can only put certain dollar figures into it where the conversion is unlimited. Yeah, contribution is $5,500 per year if you qualify, or $6,500 if you're 50 and older. That's a contribution based upon current earned income. A conversion, I don't care if you're working or not, and I don't care what you make. Anybody can, can do a conversion for any level. Right, but then if, I guess another caveat on that is that let's say if I'm 40 years old and I have money in a 401k plan, then it's up to the plan document is if, if that's my only money. Right. Right. Because I think sometimes people hear us and say, hey, you know what? I'm 45 years old. I love the conversion idea. I want to convert it. Okay. Well, where's the money coming from? Yeah. Well, my own 401k plan. It's like, okay, well then you have to do an inner plan conversion. Yes. Right. Instead of taking the money out of the 401k into a Roth IRA, because the likelihood of you doing an in-service withdrawal is probably nil. Right. So then you have to put it, you could do a conversion in your 401k plan, right? Instead of going to the Roth IRA, you would go to a Roth 401k. Yeah. But then that's irrevocable. Yeah. That's, and you have to have the provision in the plan anyway. Right. And that's a huge point because when you do a regular, a regular IRA to Roth conversion, you can always recharacterize up to the filing date of your tax return in the following tax year. Whereas a 401k, you can't. In plan, 401k conversion is a one-way street. That's it for us today. For Big Al Clopine, I'm Joe Anderson. The show's called Your Money, Your Wealth. So to recap today's show, yes, Social Security will still be around when you need it, and there may even be a benefit available to you that you aren't considering. Using investment losses, giving to charity, and buying health insurance are good tax planning tips for millionaires and wannabe millionaires. Special thanks to our guest, Larry Swedro, author of Your Complete Guide to Factor-Based Investing, for telling us how to really diversify our investment portfolios. Subscribe to the podcast at yourmoneyyourwealth.com through your favorite podcatcher or on iTunes iTunes, where you can also check out our ratings and reviews. And remember, this show is about you. If there's something you'd like to hear on Your Money, Your Wealth, just email info at purefinancial.com. Listen next week for more Your Money, Your Wealth, presented by Pure Financial Advisors, a registered investment advisor. This show does not intend to provide personalized investment advice through this broadcast and does not represent that the securities or services discussed are suitable for any investor. Investors are advised not to rely on any information contained in the broadcast in the process of making a full and informed investment decision. Your Money, Your Wealth opening song Motown Gold by Carl James Pestka is licensed under a Creative Commons license.